Uh, starting off, um, 20 years ago, it's hard to believe it's been that long, 20 years ago, I attended officer candidate school with the Army. And in this course, enlisted soldiers go through a three-month training program on how to lead soldiers. And yeah, obviously, both physical and mental demands are placed on the candidates because they're trying to see how you will react in chaos and how you'll react in, you know, uh, in combat. And I'm not going to lie, there were some days where I thought it was very tough. But of all the days that I spent in the course, there was one day that I found to be the absolute worst of all. And it was the day we had to rate our peers. So you're in a group of about 15 people, and you've been with these uh, soldiers for about two months at this point. So you've gotten to know them. You're, you know, you're kind of a tight-knit group. And you have to sit there, 1 through 15, and rate them. And it gets better. So after you do this, you have to get up in front of the class and tell the top three why you made them the top three. And as you can imagine, then you go and tell the bottom three in front of them, the class, the instructors, why you think they deserve to be in the bottom three. All right. Y'all know that I grew up in the South. About 50 miles down the road in Florence, my family hails from towns like Olana and Sardis and Effingham. My dad's from Mobile, Alabama. We don't do that down here, do we? We don't do it. It's manners. Southern women teach their children manners, and we like to sugarcoat things. In fact, if it's really bad, what do we do? We bless their hearts. Exactly <laughs> what we do. So you can imagine my dilemma, but I did what I had to do. And for the three that I found in the bottom, I gave them clear, unambiguous reasons why I felt like they warranted being in the bottom. But you know what it did? It, it taught me a valuable lesson. You know, there's times in life where the truth should not be sugarcoated. You know, in our case, we were on the doorstep of being put into situations that could get people killed, and so it was very much warranted because leading in that capacity is a tremendous responsibility and feelings have to be put aside in that case so that the truth can be spoken. So this morning we're going to operate under the same principle because this morning we're going to be addressing both the doctrine of heaven and the doctrine of hell as we continue our study of systematic theology following John Nielsen's book, Knowing God's Truth. And it may be a bit uncomfortable at times. And that's okay, because there is one truth, and our fear of God must always outweigh our fear of man, so that we never fail to speak the truth. We never dilute what we're taught in the scriptures for the benefit of comfort at the expense of the truth. We can never do that. You know, John Bunyan, uh, who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, which is the book that we're going uh, to be studying and, and preaching on the, at the end of this year, uh, he wrote several other books. Uh, they're all equally good. Uh, he, he wrote one on hell, and it's called A Few Sighs from Hell. It's also called Groans of the Damned, which I thought would be an excellent rock band. But um, <laughs> I think he was able to sell more books going with A Few Sighs from Hell. Um, but he says this, this is a great quote from the book. He said, therefore, he who is a preacher of the word had need not only tell them, but testify to them again and again that their sins, if they continue in them, will damn them and damn them again. 
And tell them again, they're living honestly according to the law. They're paying everyone their own. They're living quietly with their neighbors. They're giving to the poor their notion of the gospel. They're saying that they believe in Christ will do them no good at the day of judgment. So let's go to our scripture this morning. It's going to come from 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through 12. And as Jake said, if you don't have your Bible this morning, you're welcome to grab the one uh, that's in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. Please take it. So again, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 12. Paul says, This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, from, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you those who are afflicted as well to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. What is hell? Well, I think there's a common misconception about hell for a lot of us. And if I'm being honest, I think I've probably fallen into this category before as well. This misconception that hell is nothing more than the absence of God. Nothing more than the absence of God. Not unlike what we see in C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, uh, where people in hell don't know that they're in hell because they've been allowed to eternally exist by doing things their own way. And in some odd sense, thinking of hell that way is probably a bit comforting. You know, it's kind of like thinking of you know, drinking gas station coffee your whole life, not knowing that something exponentially better exists. That, that whole ignorance is bliss uh, mentality. And again, it, it's comforting and maybe a bit of a defense mechanism uh, to think about it uh, and to think about the ultimate reality, the, the severity of hell. The problem is that's not what Scripture tells us. That is not found within the Scriptures. That's not what Jesus himself tells us. You know, in fact, Jesus speaks a tremendous amount about hell, and he uses words like fire, darkness, prison. He uses phrases like gnashing of teeth. And many people wonder about these descriptions, and they wonder, is it a metaphor? Are these descriptions imagery? Is it literal? Or is this just a way to say that it's bad? And I don't want to hijack the entire sermon this morning on this, but I want to dive in a bit because at the end of the day, hell is a reality. It is an eternal reality, as we read in verse 9. And that's hard, I think, for us to think about. That's hard to think about in eternity. And in our fallen state and in our sinful world, it doesn't seem fair, does it? You live on average 78 years, and then you pay for that for eternity. It doesn't seem fair. And so 
folks have come up with an idea that, you know, it can't be that bad. It's probably, it's, we probably just get annihilated. And so you have this annihilation you know, movement or this annihilation belief. And it simply means that unbelievers will just vaporize at the day of judgment and cease to exist. And again, that's a very palatable thing to think about as well, either eternal glory or vaporize. Eternal glory or be gone forever. And you have to be careful with annihilationism because if you read some verses and some passages out of context, it could seem to almost support that. And many annihilationists will hang on to words like perish and ultimate destruction, as we read above, that are used throughout Scripture. And again, this is the reason the Bible should be read in its entirety. Because if we if done so... We understand that hell is eternal. Sins that are committed against an eternal God are punished eternally. Sins committed against an eternal God and not forgiven by the free gift of Jesus Christ are punished eternally. And that is just the reality of it. And so to stand here and try to soften the reality to make us more comfortable is an error in judgment, it's a dangerous path, and none of us who share this platform will ever do that. Randy Alcorn wrote a book on heaven, entitled Heaven, um, and it's a great book, and I'm going to quote this book uh, throughout the sermon, but he starts with this. He says, the best of life on earth is a glimpse of heaven. The worst of life is a glimpse of hell. For Christians, this present life is the closest they will come to hell. For unbelievers, this is the closest they will come to heaven. And I think that quote is a very good summation of these two doctrines. We're certainly going to dive deeper this morning, but I think those three sentences get after what these doctrines are trying to tell us. And for us, it should give us hope. It should give us hope to live apart from the world, apart from the whims of society, apart from the fear that so many of us walk through this life carrying. And it should also convict us. It should convict us to share the truth. It should convict us to share the absolute truth with the world. You know, Jesus, as I said, speaks a lot about hell in his ministry, and it's helpful to go back to the Gospels and read how he describes it, because I hear this a lot too. I hear this question, are the fires of hell literal or is it imagery? And the answer for me is simple. I I don't care. I do not care, and I don't mean to be flippant with that answer, but hear this. We know that heaven will be so wondrous that our finite minds And our finite language in particular can't describe it. So it's described to us as streets of gold and things of that nature. Things that we can relate to. Well, this is the exact way that hell is described to us. And I get that if taken literally, fire and darkness seem to be at odds with each other. But what Jesus is doing here is he is expressing the horror of that punishment to us in a way that we can understand it. And he uses the term Gehenna. He uses the term Gehenna 11 times, which is a Greek word literally translated meaning Valley of the Son of Himon. Um, but, but what it was, Gehenna was a smoldering trash dump outside the city gates. A trash dump 
outside the city gates that constantly burned. The fire never went out. Unclaimed bodies were put in Gehenna. Rot and decay and permanent eternal fire. It never went out. But he warns us about it. He warns us about it. He warns us through his parables to to be alert. He warns us to stay awake. He warns of this by using words like darkness and prison. But he's using things here that we know, that we can see. You know, the, the, the folks could walk out and see the smoldering trash dump day in and day out. They see it every day. They can see this on fire. So they can understand what he's getting at. They can understand the horror that exists for a a life apart from the Father. The horror that awaits. We're not capable of grasping the absolute horror of hell. In the same context, we're not capable of grasping the wonder of heaven. But one thing this does, one thing the doctrine of hell does is it tells us about God. Two things it tells us is this. It tells us that God is just and that God hates sin, that he is wrathful towards sin. So God is just, and we've talked about this before, but God is perfect in all things. And as such, he is perfectly just, perfectly righteous. And in a perfectly just scenario, sin has to be paid for. There has to be a consequence There has to be a charge. There has to be punishment because there has to be a debt. There has to be. Sin has to be punished and sin has to be atoned for because that is what happens in a perfectly just scenario. Leslie Smucker says this about it. She says, The one truth that allows me to accept the justice of hell is the indisputable certitude of the goodness of God. While the notion of hell is difficult for me to grasp, Jesus, with nail-scarred hands, is worthy of my complete trust. His goodness causes me to look ultimately not to hell, but to the cross. Herein lies the problem with a number of Christians today and with a lot of Christianity in general. They don't believe this. Let me rephrase. Their actions indicate that they do not believe this. Church, there is an underlying universalism present in today's Christianity that is polluting today's Christianity. This idea that God is love and everyone will have eternal life. God is love and only love and everyone will have eternal life. And that sounds appealing, but it is not found in the scriptures. And this is why we read the Bible. It is not found in it. God has a desire that all of us will be saved, but it is not the case. It's not there. It is dangerous to think that. It is a scheme of the enemy to think that way. Be aware of it. Paul tells us many times in the New Testament to be aware of it. From, from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgive, given anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that, what, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. 
And again, ending the, you know, the famous chapter in Ephesians, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. See, Paul understood what was happening and what was going to happen. He understood how the world and how the enemy would dilute the faith, how they would distort it, and how, the, how they would disfigure it. And in those passages, he's reminding the early church, he's reminding the Corinthians and the Ephesians and the believers of Christ of the deceit that is found in the enemy, of the schemes that the enemy conjures, of the eternally fatal error of it. God is just. He is a just God, and a just and righteous God must punish sin. Next, it tells us that God is wrathful towards sin. God hates sin. The reality of hell shows us that he hates it. His anger burns against it, and not the anger in our flawed worldly sense, but a righteous anger at what affects his people. A righteous anger that a father has out of love for his children. A loving father is not indifferent A loving father is not indifferent to that. A loving father will not accept that. And we know that. Loving parents don't let their children act in whatever way they choose. In God's hatred of sin, in his absolute hatred of it, in his wrath, he will ultimately destroy it. And so we have to understand that. I read an interesting article by John Piper about this. And he said that age-old quote, love the sinner but hate the sin is wrong. And it should state, love the sinner and hate the sin. And at first, I I kind of thought he was just splitting hairs, because if you read enough articles, there's always somebody that's going to publish something that's counter to what we're saying we've heard. Mary really didn't have a little lamb. The lamb was actually full-grown or something, because the fleece doesn't turn white until he's eight months old. Or Somebody always, and that's where my mind went when I saw this. But the more I thought about it and the more I, I... Yeah, I studied on it. I think he's got a solid, solid point here because this is the point that he's trying to make. He said, and this is tough to think about. He said, God does hate sinners. And he's going to quote the Psalms twice. He says, you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Or the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. So it's just not true to give the impression that God doesn't hate sinners by saying he loves the sinner and hates the sin. And he goes on to say that in hell, God is not punishing sin. Rather, he is punishing sinners. And so this begins to make sense. And David Schrock says this, he says, biblically speaking, divine wrath is the right and righteous response of God to sin. Put in a positive spin, he says, wrath in perfect harmony with all of his divine attributes is God's holy action of retributive justice towards persons whose actions deserve eternal condemnation. God formed humanity to bring him glory, yet because we rebelled against his holy standard, The perfect judge of the universe has declared he will pour out his wrath upon those who have sinned against him, and listen to this last part, without repentance or faith in his son. Without repentance or faith in his son. 
So I'll close this out with going back to Piper, and I think this is important as we switch gears and begin to look at the doctrine of heaven. Piper says, now here's why this matters. If we don't understand that God finds us hateful and loathsome in our ugly sin, we won't be as stunned by what his love is for us. God God saves millions of people who are loathsome to him in and of themselves until he saves them and makes them the apple of his eye, which makes salvation stunningly more. God comes to us not in our attractiveness, like, oh, I really love this person and just hate their sin. No, he finds me reprehensible because of my rebellion, just like we find certain people wicked because of their sin. And he's coming to us and he's dying for us in order that he may make us into the apple of his eye. We cannot forget that grace. May we never forget that grace. So as we move into the doctrine of heaven this morning, I want to say this first off. Heaven, the eternal heaven, the eternal heaven will be a very real place and not a spiritual realm. So be honest. How many of you were terrified as a kid or maybe even as an adult about heaven? So when I was a kid, I was led to believe uh, by my dear sweet grandmother that heaven would be one never-ending worship service. I was five when I got this news, and all I could think about was I could barely sit still for that hour. How could I do that for eternity? So as a side note, I remember the first service I ever sat through. I was probably six. I have a twin brother. Some of you know that. Um, and no other siblings, so um, you know it was time for us to go to big church, I think is what we called it back then. And so my brother and I were very, very excited about this, super excited. But my dad, on the other hand, sensing he had probably made a terrible mistake, um, did what every good father does. He threatened us. Um, the, the spanking was implied, but the, the one he brought up, he said, if you misbehave, you'll come home and you will sit in a chair for an hour, an hour. And I remember thinking the horror of that. Um, Full disclosure, um, we did end up sitting in the chair for an hour. Uh, My brother thought that the lady's fur coat in front of him would be funny to pet, and it was funny, and uh, the two of us were the only ones that laughed. So, um, but anyway, spanking wasn't near as bad as the chair. Anyway, so if you've been following along in this chapter of the book, um, I I do like how the author differentiates here between the present state and the new heaven and new earth. So believers who have died are with Jesus now in spirit only until the resurrection, which Jesus still refers to as paradise, if you remember the thief on the cross from Luke 23. And he said to them, "'Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise.'" But as we follow the book, we're going to be discussing our eternal home, the place where we will reside with our Creator forever. And as we learn in the New Testament, the heaven that awaits us is heaven and earth rolled into one, as the book book calls it. And listen to this. This is going to be a real place. We will have real interactions with other humans in real resurrected bodies, not unlike the way we are talking here this morning. But we learn a lot about this too. We learn a lot about the doctrine of heaven. We learn a lot about our creator. First, we learn that God is generous. 
we learn he's generous. He's generous and he wants to share the delights of what he has created with us. Don't mistake that for prosperity or the prosperity gospel, though, because he doesn't tell us we're going to have that in this world. He doesn't tell us we're going to have success in this life, really any success. He never tells us we're going to have money, health, family. He never tells us we're going to be free of pain. In fact, Jesus tells us the opposite when he said, remember, you will have trials. You will have trials in this life. But relax, I have overcome that. He does not promise us an easy life here but he does promise us a perfect life in heaven with him. He is a generous, generous God, and he wants to share that with us. Going back to Randy Alcorn, he says this, to be in resurrected bodies on a resurrected earth in resurrected friendships, enjoying a resurrected culture with the resurrected Jesus. Now that will be the ultimate party. Everyone will be who God made them to be, and none of us will ever suffer or die again. As a Christian, the day I die will be the best day I've ever lived, but it won't be the best day I will ever live. Resurrection day will be far better. And the first day on the new earth, that will be one big step for man, one big step for mankind, one giant leap for God's glory. And so in his generosity, he has prepared this for us. He has prepared this place for us to be with him. And Jesus speaks of it in John 14. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I'm going. So think about that. Think about the most generous person that you know. Think about their traits. What are the traits of the most generous people that you know? What makes them generous? I would imagine most of us know people like this who freely give of their time. They give of their, their finances. They give of their gifts, both, you know, both tangible and spiritual gifts, um, I think we all kind of know somebody. You know, for me, uh, when I was in high school, I used to participate in the Saukahatchee Summer Service, which was a program through the Methodist Church where you spent a, a week in the summer uh, rebuilding houses and repairing houses. Some of you may be familiar with the program. Well, the, this particular week, I think I was a senior in high school, and we were on St. Helena Island just outside of Beaufort, uh, working on a house that in all seriousness should have been condemned. You know, in that area, common practice was when there were ever septic issues or septic tank uh, problems, they would go under the house and, and just cut the line. And, and it works. Unfortunately, all the sewage just collects underneath your house because usually there was no money to pay to have uh, the septic tanks fixed. So what we would usually do is go and actually build an outhouse for them until we could you know, get, uh, get down there and fix the uh, septic tank. Um, and so on this particular day, I got chosen to be the guy. When you're five foot seven, you get chosen to go in the crawl space quite a bit, <laughs> what I came to learn. And um, so anyway, I think I had a three-inch coupler in one hand and the armor of truth in the other, I guess. But um, it, yeah, I had to shimmy under the uh, crawl space, and it was awful. Um, I think I had about three inches between my nose and the floor joist. But I got under there and you know, found some, of all things, puppies. It was a litter of puppies. Um, yeah, it was really, really cool. And then on the other side of me was the mother. 
And uh, she wasn't happy. She wasn't excited about my presence. But anyway, we got the puppies out, got the thing fixed. And at the end of the week, um, we took up a collection uh, for the gentleman whose house we were working on. And, and to say that this guy was poor uh, was an understatement. Um, he worked at a mortuary uh, that where he had to walk. He walked two miles every morning to work, and then at about four in the afternoon, walked two miles back. Um, so we gave him this collection. You know, we had all scrounged up our money, and we maybe had $100 in cash uh, to give him. And my, my heart, my 18-year-old sinner's heart, immediately thought when we gave him that cash, well, we'll be buying his cigarettes and beer uh, for the next week. Well, you know, we gave him the cash, and he immediately left. And he came back a few hours later, and he had bags um, and they were full of bread and lunch meat for us. And then he had a bag that he kept for, for himself, and it had uh, 12 cans of dog food. And so I think that was probably uh, one of the days where the Lord showed me what true generosity looked like and what a cheerful giver looked like. And I've never forgotten that. And I, I see our church as a similar example. And you, you freely give. You, you freely give of your time. You give of your money. You give of your gifts and your spiritual gifts. And for most, it is out of love. Because generosity is a natural response to a heart that's been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because in that generosity, his love is revealed to us. His perfect love and his divine love. And that, that's another thing that the doctrine of heaven does for us. The doctrine of heaven tells us that God is loving, and not only is he generous in his gifts, they are all rooted in love. A loving God who wants the very best for us, who is generous in his gifts. He, you know, he is generous out of no obligation. No obligation. He is generous out of love. C.S. Lewis says this in, in The Problem of Pain. He said, but God will look to every soul like its first love because he is its first love. Your place in heaven will seem to be made for you and you alone because you were made for it. Made for it stitch by stitch as a glove is made for a hand. It is from this point of view that we can understand hell in aspect of privation. All of your life an unattainable ecstasy has hovered just beyond the grasp of your consciousness. The day is coming when you awake to find beyond all hope that you have attained it, or else that it was within your reach and you have lost it forever. And I don't think we need a lot of quotes uh, to know this, because the best place to go and see this and to understand it is the Scripture, because we understand through the Bible that God is not only loving, that's who He is. That is who he is. He is perfect in that. From 1 John chapter 4, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so we might live through him, in this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And I think that sums it up perfectly.
So what, what do we do with that? Understanding and knowing those two doctrines, what do we do with that? How does that relate to the gospel? Well, it's easy. It's easy. This is why we evangelize. This is why we evangelize, and this is why nothing is more important than the gospel. This is why no, no charity, no outreach program, no community event, no song, no concert, no building, nothing is more important than the gospel. We don't want to mistake our fruit for our purpose. Listen, let's not mistake our fruit for our purpose. Our purpose and our task is to tell of him, is to make disciples, is to make sure the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is known to the world. You're feeding the hungry, clothing the needy, sheltering the homeless are all good things. Those are all great things, but that's fruit. Our purpose is to make him known, to fulfill the great commission. Everything else is fruit. Randy Alcorn says this, it would upset us but why would we think well, but would we think it unloving if a doctor told us we had potentially fatal cancer? And would the doctor not tell us if the cancer could be eradicated? Why then do we not tell unsaved people about the cancer of sin and evil and how the inevitable penalty of eternal destruction can be avoided by the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ? Have any of you seen the movie The Road to Perdition? Um, I gotta start looking at the ratings before I throw out movies. It may be R. Y'all just you know, watch it with discretion. Um, in it, it's a great movie though. It's about a uh, hitman uh, for the mob. Um, you know, he um, played by Tom Hanks. And he plays a guy Michael Sullivan. He, he's the right hand man of this crime boss John Rooney, who is played by Paul Newman. And uh, uh, and this is from I think Siskel and or Ebert. He says, but when Sullivan's son accidentally witnesses one of his hits. He must choose between his crime family and his real one. It's a great movie. But anyway, th- there's a, um, an interchange uh, during this movie that stuck with me. And I think this is a la- a, the way a lot of people think. So Michael Sullivan's had enough with his boss. You know, they're in a heated argument. And he looks at, at him and he says, he calls him a murderer. He calls him a murderer. And you know what his boss's response is? He says this. He said, there are only murderers in this room, Michael. Open your eyes. This is the life we chose. This is the life we lead. And there's only one guarantee. None of us will see heaven. And that's an awesome quote. That's an awesome quote for a movie. I love it. The problem is it's wrong. That quote is wrong. It is absolutely wrong. It is fatally and eternally wrong. Because even these guys, these, these murderers, the, these adulterers, these criminals, they, even them, they cannot out the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. They can't out the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is an ignorant and it is an arrogant position to think otherwise because Christ did not go to the cross for a few. He went for all of us. He willingly went for all of us. He suffered the humiliation He suffered the pain. He suffered the separation. He suffered the condemnation for all of us, for all of us, so that by our faith in him, our record is wiped clean. It is wiped clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's wiped clean by the cross of Jesus Christ. Bunyan goes on to say this, 
He says, therefore, for God's sake, if you love your souls, consider and beg of God for Jesus Christ's sake that he would work such a work of grace in your hearts and give you such a faith in his son, Jesus Christ, that you may not only have rest here as you think, not only think your state safe while you live here, but that you may be safe indeed, not only here, but also when you're gone. And then he quotes the, uh, the parable here, lest you cry in the anguish and perplexity of your souls, send Lazarus to my companions who have been beguiled by Satan as I have been to testify to them, lest they come into this place of torment as I have done. So as we wrap up this morning, know this. What we've been studying, these are some of the most common doctrines of our faith. Uh, some of the doctrines that we know to be true. What we as believers know to be true. We know that God is perfect. He is perfectly just. He is perfect in love. We know that He is the truth. And as such, though we are corrupted and distorted... By our sin, he still loves us, and he's generous. You know, he has created us to long for him. He's created us to long for him, but sin has distorted that so much that we long for what the world has to offer. And when we do that, we come up short time and time again. And, and deep down inside at our core, we know that we do. We know that we come up short and if you don't believe that, you're lying to yourself. We come up time and time again, we come up short. We have been given a gift. We've been given a gift of eternal life in the presence of our Creator, even though our sin, our own individual sin, is a direct affront to Him. But He gave us a way out. And if you've put your faith in Him... Act like it. Listen, the unbeliever walks through this world with a death sentence, yet ours has been forgiven. So it is time that we act like that, that we live in that peace and that we live in that blessing. And if, if you want to know how, how do I live like that? Well, I'll tell you, a start is forgive others as they have forgiven you, as he has forgiven you. Show grace and mercy to others in the same way he has done that to you. Think the best of people. Give people the benefit of the doubt. Stop complaining. Stop whining. Do something. And I mean that with all, with all the love that I can muster, and that's from all of us, but don't be a professional complainer. The church does not exist to meet your every preference or every desire. It doesn't. The church isn't a cafeteria where you can come through and take what you want and pass and discard on what you don't. Listen, the church is the body of Christ, chock full of sinners, trying to show other sinners where to find redemption. We're broken, we're sinful, and we're ignorant. We're imperfect, but we're trying our best to steward the gifts of God and lead others to him. And it looks ugly at times, doesn't it? It does. It looks ugly and it's messy at times because, again, we are imperfect. But listen to this. The body of believers in our current imperfect state rejoicing in the good news. All of us rejoicing in the gospel 
of Jesus Christ, unified in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what it is. That is what the church is. So if you're here today and you have done that, then rejoice. Rejoice because you have been forgiven. You have been forgiven and the best day of your life is yet to come. We have been created that way. And if you're here today and you haven't done that, what are you waiting for? Don't be lazy. Don't be lazy. Don't walk through this life like I once did in some middle ground, some maybe, maybe not mentality, some agnosticism. Do something. Do something with it. Ask questions. Read the Bible. I know it is a long book, but if it's true, is there anything more important to read? Read the Bible because if you do, here is what you're going to find. I can guarantee you this. This is what you're going to find. That God in his wisdom and mercy and perfection loves you. And he loves you individually. Individually. He knows your name. He knows you better than you. Are you struggling today? Are you struggling today with, with health issues? Are you struggling today with financial issues? Is your marriage failing? Are you addicted this morning? Jesus says, come to him. Your sins cannot outweigh the gospel of Jesus Christ. No matter what you have done, you do not need to clean up to come through these doors. Come the way you are and we will meet you where you are at. Come, come and celebrate with us. Come and rejoice with us. Come and praise with us. Come and worship with us. A creator so loving, he gave us a way to live eternally, eternally with him, a way to live in perfect love with him forever. This morning, lay those burdens down. Lay them down this morning at the foot of the cross and let the peace that surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Father, thank you for the church. Father, this morning, we are, we're grateful. We know that, that what we've talked about this morning, Father, is, is heavy. Father, it can be terrifying for us to think about. Eternity is hard for us to grasp. It's hard for our finite minds to grasp. So that in these times of fear and anxiety, Father, we ask that you help us to look to you. And when we look to you, Father, remind us of who you are and that you are good, and that you love us, and that you care for us, and that even in our sin, Father, even in our sin and our brokenness, you have found a way out for us so that no matter what we have done, no matter what sins we have done in our past, in our future, we have been, we will be forgiven through your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray in his mighty name. Amen.